First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, it says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Paul's letter to Timothy was meant to encourage him in his life and in his walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul speaks and has written warnings about false teachers and false teaching. He's also given several charges to Timothy to be a warrior in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, to be a good minister in chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, to be impartial in chapter 5, verse 21 through 25, and now to be a man of God in chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Timothy was charged to flee evil and to follow what's good in verse 11. To fight the good fight of faith in verse 12. To remain faithful to the Lord Jesus in verses 13 and 14. And again also in verse 20 later on. I've noticed that when I teach through Paul's epistles. I suspect that sometimes what he's writing must have been what he's preaching. Because Paul has a very difficult time concluding his message. Whenever you see a pastor say, in conclusion, you can expect a little more stuff to, to go on. It's like, do you know what it means when the pastor looks at his watch? It doesn't mean anything at all. Paul is going to find it difficult to close this book. But he's going to give Timothy three F's to set him on guard. Flee these things in verses 4 through 11. Follow after in verses 6 and then again in verse 11. Fight the good fight of faith. We can even add one more. Remain faithful in verses 13 through 16. So we begin with flee the lust for wealth at the very beginning of verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, but you, O man of God, flee these things. And we shouldn't ignore that statement where Paul calls Timothy man of God. What an interesting title. Moses was called the man of God. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 1. Eli was called a man of God in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27. Samuel was called a man of God in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6. All you have to do to see the laundry list is just check in your concordance. And you'll see this designation. The man of God runs away from evil and pursues good. The man of God wants to run towards goodness and righteousness. So the man of God runs away from evil things. What things? Again, Paul has given us a little bit of an insight. Flee swelling pride. The folly of ignorance. Flee wicked workers who deny the faith, who cause confusion, who are conceited and argumentative. He's already talked about that in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. He's also addressed the issue of unbridled, unchecked greed that leads to destruction in verses 9 and 10. Paul basically says to Timothy, run for your life. And that seems to be the example that we see often in Old Testament situations like with Joseph where he's put put under difficult circumstances and he has to make a run for it. Sometimes the only option that you have is to run away from evil, to get away from it. The Christian should be deeply suspicious of all who have an unbiblical and an unhealthy preoccupation with getting rich and get rich schemes. And that's the context. He's been talking about faithless teachers who pursue money. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 15, we remember that John wrote, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, none of this is from the Father, but is of the world. So when we go back to Paul's point, what is his point? And in the broadest terms possible, let's lay it out. The, the man of God can't trust wealth and God at the same time. That's the point. You have to choose one or the other. And if you, choose, if you trust the Lord, you're going to experience peace, service to others, satisfaction, humility, certainty, contentment. If you trust riches, in the end you're going to suffer anxiety, self-centeredness, dissatisfaction, arrogance, uncertainty, and then this creeping, contagious greed. And it should prompt a question, why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult to run away? from the false promises of wicked people and the false promises of wealth. I think it's because, in part, we live in a world committed to promoting the false message that man is the measure of all things. Jesus said, 
Does a person's life consist in the abundance of their possessions? And he makes it abundantly clear that that is absolutely the opposite. And yet it seems to be the thing that we embrace. We're constantly exposed to the spiritual disease of what some has called affluenza. The unbelievable need to have more and more and more. And we're invited to have... And we live in a culture and a society that says, you should have more. You deserve a break today. You should get what you want. And then we live in a culture and a society that says, look, get whatever it is that you want, and you don't even have to pay for it now. But do they expect payment later? Yes. Which results in debt. And we live in a debtor culture. We flirt instead of flee from temptation. Henry Ward Beecher famously said, quote, In this world, it is not what we take up, but what we give up that makes us rich. And so Paul is going to ask Timothy, to consider it, to flee certain things, but to follow after the things of God. Look what it says at the end of the verse, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Instead of what the false teachers wanted, Paul, the true teacher, says, I'm going to offer you something else. Instead of pursuing self, instead of pursuing wealth, he's going to offer us selflessness and riches in righteousness. And I want to draw your attention to that word pursue. In the Greek language, it's a word that meant to run after. But it wasn't just simply to run after. It meant to run in such a way that you were going to run hard. It carries the idea of what police officers call hot pursuit. It's where you have as something the object of the pursuit. The idea is an eager pursuit that anticipates a reward as soon as you catch what it is that you're looking for. And so Paul offers Timothy six things that both men and women of God are asked, encouraged to pursue after hotly. Number one, righteousness. Number two, godliness. Number three, faith. Number four, love. Number five, patience. Number six, gentleness. And we could easily devote hours to each of these subjects since they're rich and full of meaning. But let me at least give you some brief definitions and descriptions. He begins with righteousness, the servant, the minister, the man of God, the woman of God pursues righteousness. That means follows hard after righteousness and And it's interesting, the the Greek word that is used, the simple meaning is to be right with God. That's the most basic meaning. Here, when he says righteousness, we could literally and very simply 
interpret this and apply this, a hot pursuit after what it means to be right with God. We might think of this as having a right heart toward God. We pursue having a right heart towards God, which is going to mean having right actions towards God and towards each other. Being right with God should always, by the way, lead to right actions and attitudes towards other people. We can only approach God on God's terms and according to God's standards. So here, righteousness doesn't just simply mean being right with God, but all that goes along with being right with God. Because in order to be right with God, you've got to come to God on God's terms. And the way that God has outlined the terms of having a right relationship with is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this becomes the other part of the point. That means you can't have a right relationship with God. Be right with God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus remakes our heart and molds our heart. Peter writes about this when he talks about that Jesus has given us his divine power, life, and goodness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory, by virtue, by which we have been given exceeding great and precious promises that through these we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, 2 Peter chapter 1. Again, the contrast is you've run away from something in order to embrace something far better and far more useful. The Lord Jesus said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled in Matthew chapter 5 verse 6. So it doesn't simply imply a casual contact with God or with Jesus. It's someone who wants this. This is what they want for their life. And so righteousness, which in turn, we are to pursue godliness. And by the way, the word that's translated godliness is an expression in the Greek language which meant to live in the light of God's holiness and power and majesty and, and, and glory. The, the idea of the word itself was a word that meant that we're to pursue the, the, a kind of a perpetual state of astonishment and awe concerning the nature and the power and the presence of God. We live our lives in the conscious awareness of the presence of God as we're going about our business. It means to seek his character. And as you're seeking the character of God, you also want to embrace appropriate behavior that best reflects that character. In a single sentence, godliness means to be Christ-like. Godliness means to be Christ-like. Paul plainly says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. 
and that you put on the new man, which is after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That word transformed is metamorphosis. It's the same word that's translated transformed or translated or transfigured in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, I heard a, a great illustration of the difference between change and transformation today. Change comes sometimes quickly. Transformation sometimes comes slowly. He used the illustration that change is like when a lady changes from using Mary Kay makeup to shopping at wherever ladies shop at Kohl's. Uh, imagine a lady decides that she's going to use different makeup. That's change. But what if a lady decides to get plastic surgery? <laughs> That's transformation. I like that. Jesus doesn't just simply change you. Jesus transforms you. And so there is faith. Here, faith means to believe and to be faithful. The word incorporates a number of things, not just the intellectual acknowledgement of something that happens to be true. It's the acknowledgement of truth coupled with trust. And what I'm going to use the, the term attachment. So the man of God seeks faith in what sense? Looking for opportunities to trust more to exercise a life that is a lifestyle of trusting God. It is a hot pursuit of attachment to God, to the things of God, again, to the character and the revelation of God. The man or the woman of God, I'm going to suggest to you, doesn't just simply learn to trust God, but then wants to trust him more and more and more in humility and dependence. It is the idea of, if I were to put it bluntly, you, you pray a, a, a kind of a prayer like that goes like this. Lord, give me the opportunity to trust you more and more and more and more. And often when you pray a prayer like that, I want to trust you more and more and more and more. The Lord will give you opportunity by taking more and more and more away from you. We get that, don't we? So we're reluctant to pray that kind of prayer or want that kind of humility, attachment, dependence. But this is the kind of faith that leads to faithfulness that generates loyalty, obedience, submission, what I'm using the term attachment, but it's an attachment that wants to please God. Remember, it's a humility and a submission that says, 
Lord, how can, how can I trust you more and more, depend upon you more and more, submit to you more and more, become attached more and more? So now all of a sudden it be, be, begins to build godliness, faith, and love. And of course, this is that inexhaustible subject that's, tr- that's the word agape. This is the love that finds its origin in God and its expression in Christ. This is the main characteristic that seems to demonstrate selflessness and sacrifice. This is the kind of love that finds its source in God and expression in Christ. This is the kind of love absent merit this is not deserving love this is undeserving love we might go so far as to say that this is the kind of love that goes out of its way to pursue those who do not deserve this is God's love for the ungodly The Holy Spirit devotes all of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to this subject by the pen of Paul. A few of my favorite verses also include Romans chapter 5 verse 6 where it says, Paul says, For when you or when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans Chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is the kind of love for the loveless. This is love for the unworthy, undeserving sinner. Let's be blunt. It's easy to love people who are adorable. Like your grandchildren. You look at them and you go, you're adorable. You're beautiful. You're attractive. You're helpless. You're dependent. It's hard to keep my hands and my lips off of my grandchildren. I want to hug them and hold them because they're adorable. And then there are those people that you don't want to hug and kiss. And you want to keep your hands away from them. And then there are those people that you go out of your way to ignore or neglect. And so the kind of godliness and the kind of faith and the kind of love is is a hot pursuit after Those people whose lives are typically characterized by isolation, being marginalized, being left behind. This is the kind of love that seeks not simply those who love back. It's not the love that seeks out the apathetic and the 
indifferent, or even the mildly annoyed. So think about that journey where the people who are lovable, the people who will love you back, the people who are apathetic and indifferent who won't love you back, the people who are mildly annoyed with you, the people who are supremely hostile towards you. And then you push the envelope even further and further in the direction of that hostility. And then God gives you a supernatural desire to care for them. And remember, love in this particular instance isn't just a a warm feeling inside of your heart, but rather it is a conscious and a deliberate decision to do what's right toward all of those people. And then patience. And you can imagine that this kind of love will require that kind of patience. The Greek word here is one of my favorites that that rhymes with Italian ice cream, spumoni. It's hupomonen, or hupomoni, but here hupomonen. This is the patient, the kind of patience that endures. This is the patient Patience that has a long fuse. This is is persistence. This is a, a faithful persistence over a long period of time. Let me put it to you even another way. This is the opposite of giving up. This is when you have that fierce struggle inside of you that says, I want to walk away. I want to walk away from God and I want to walk away from the people of God and the things of God and, and, and the, the things that make for godliness and righteousness. You want to give up and this is the word that means to hold on and to hold out and to not give up. Let's connect Paul's thoughts just for a moment. Righteousness are acts that are morally upright and virtuous. Faith and love are the fundamental things that make Christ and Christianity and Paul's teachings different from everything else that will generate opposition and contention and persecution and trouble, which will give you opportunity to love and patience. When you're not loved back. And Timothy's going to need patience. In dealing with the brothers and sisters in Ephesus. And with all of the byproducts that come from living in a broken and a fallen world. People who pray for patience are really asking for trouble. Because the moment that you pray for patience again, the Lord's going to go, okay. Lord, I really want to be more patient. Excuse me? No, I really do. I want to be more patient. The moment that you pray for patience, it's an invitation for persecution, opposition, suffering. And the Lord will say, if that's what you really want, then I'm going to give you every opportunity to cultivate it. No wonder the Bible says that we're to be patient with everyone. You know what I love about the statement that we're to be patient with everyone is that 
thankfully, everyone includes me. The Bible commands you to be patient with me. But it also commands you to be patient with yourself as well. You know, it's one thing to be patient with the people around you, and it's another thing to be patient with yourself. Evelyn Underhill writes, quote, Patience with ourselves is duty for Christians, and the only humility, for it means patience with a growing creature who God has taken in hand and whose completion he will affect in his own time and own way, unquote. And I love that because it was Underhill's way of saying, be patient with yourself. God is at work. God is at work. God is at work. He's working on your mind and your heart. He's working. He's working. God is at work in you. And then there's gentleness. And the word is sometimes translated meekness in the Greek language. It is the word that incorporates so much. Tenderness, humility, consideration, self-control, discipline. Someone has called this strength informed by discipline. Gentleness is an attitude. But it's also a state of mind. And in our culture, it's wrongly been interpreted as meek equaling weak equaling coward. But it's exactly the opposite. The gentle person is willing to be hurt rather than avoid being hurt. You know who actually comes to my mind when I was thinking about this and I was preparing this message? When I was a little boy, I used to watch when sort of a fast-approaching uh, um, adolescence, Bonanza. Some of you are old enough to remember Bonanza. There was the dad Cartwright. There was Adam Cartwright. There was Hoss and little Joe. And you'll remember Hoss was this great big guy. He must have weighed close to 310 or 320 pounds. He was like a refrigerator with a head on top of it. And he wore this great big hat and he was kind and gentle. Now he was the very personification of this. He was kind and gentle to everyone because he knew that if he just took them in his, that great big paw that was his hand, he could crush their skull like I don't, a grape. And so he, he was a person that you could push and push and push, but he knew, he knew that if you, if, that, that the only reason why he doesn't kill you is because if he hits you, you're going to die. And so he had this long suffering, but again, it, it's a patience that, even then had a, had a fuse. There was an end to it. The way that I would put this, the gentle person loves people and peace. The gentle person loves people and peace. The gentle person will unite mercy and peace. If someone is suffering, the gentle person intervenes with mercy and strength. 
If evil is being done, meekness or gentleness intervenes and attempts to stop it or correct it. Gentleness relies on self-control. So the meek person controls his or her mind and his or her spirit. The meek person voluntarily dies to self and asks, what is God's will in this situation? Again, we might think of the gentleness as a person who, is, who combines the characteristics of humility, tenderness, strength of mind, strength of will. The person denies himself or herself considers others. By the way, this is the one characteristic that Jesus uses to identify himself. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am meek, read gentle, same word. Lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Now, what's interesting to me is about its inclusion since as I read this text, I'm left with the impression that Timothy was really that way. So why does he include this? I'm going to suggest to you that Timothy is timid, but I'm also going to suggest that he almost certainly has this characteristic. The minister must confront false teachers and false teaching. Now, I want you to think about this. Because he has to confront false teachers and false teachings, is he going to need power? Yes. Is he going to need strength? Yes. Is he going to need gentleness? I think the answer is yes. The false teacher and the false teachings have no power against a righteous, gentle leader who speaks the truth and then lives the truth. It's a powerful combination, isn't it? And so we learn from Jesus. He was holy in his nature, Luke chapter 1. Harmless in his actions, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Undefiled in his life, 1 John 3, 5. Separate in his service, John 17, 19. Meek in spirit, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Humble in heart, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Devoted in purpose, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. So the list, by the way, compares favorably with the fruit of the spirit that's listed in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 and I'm going to suggest to you the character of Christ and then the qualification of the church elder in chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 so all of the stuff that we've just read becomes the character qualifications for service for leadership Albert Barnes writes, quote, The most deeply felt obligation on earth is that which the Christian feels to imitate his or her redeemer. You see, there's something inside of you that wells up and says, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to reflect his life and his love and his character. So he says, 
flee greed and covetousness. Follow righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, and now fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is going to use the metaphor of an athlete, fight the good fight of faith. So is he suggesting that you punch out your family and your friends? That's, it's a metaphor. He's not talking about violence. Here the word fight is interesting. It's the Greek word agonizo. It means to struggle. You know that word, agonizo. What, what, what's the English word that we get from that? Agony, agonize. It incorporates several different thoughts. Battle, contention, engagement. But it's the kind of engagement that you do with sufficient enthusiasm and force. This is when you're entering into a contest of some... I don't know if you've ever been in a contest where you play and it's okay, you just play. But then there's certain contests that you play and you win. And you're, you're going to do what's necessary to win. You're going to train. You're going to exercise. You're going to compete. Here the idea is, I'm going to suggest to you, the idea includes not just simply effort, but a desperate struggle. So what does that mean? Does it mean a desperate struggle for eternal life? I thought we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, lest we should boast. What's Paul talking about? Matthew Henry writes, quote, Those who will get to heaven must fight their way there. There must be a conflict with corruption and temptation and the power of darkness. Observe. It is a good fight. It is a good cause. It will have a good end. This isn't the fight that results in salvation. This is the fight that comes as a result of salvation. Do you understand? You are saved by grace through faith. This we must lay hold on eternal life. As those who are afraid of coming short of it and losing it, lay hold and take heed of losing your hold. Kenneth Wiest writes, quote, Paul exhorts Timothy to lay hold of eternal life. He doesn't imply that he doesn't possess it. Timothy was saved. He possessed eternal life as a gift of God. What Paul was desirous of was that Timothy experience more of what this eternal life is in his life. I don't know if you understand that. This is the eternal life in you that's willing to engage in the conflict. Embrace the battle. Fight the fight. I want you to think about this for just a moment because it, it's going to carry over when we finally do 
get into the book of Joshua. The Christian life is a blessing and a battle. It's both. So what does the man of God profess? There is eternal life. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. What, what exactly does that mean? It, I'm going to suggest to you, it doesn't mean that this is how we earn salvation. What this is, is a declaration that there is such a thing as a salvation. We Christians believe that there is such a thing as eternal life. That eternal life is a reality. That we can trust Jesus and live forever. We believe in eternal life. In the presence of many witnesses. In what sense? Here's the idea. All who come in contact with us. Recognize that we're Christ followers. That we trust Jesus. That we're going to live forever. We believe in eternal life. In the presence of many witnesses. Let me put it to you another way. If the people closest to you don't know you're a Christ lover and a Christ follower and a Christian, you probably aren't. I know some of you are thinking, well, that sounds kind of harsh. But this is the description that Paul is giving to Timothy. He's giving a description of a Christ lover and a Christ follower where they can see in your life the presence of life. The presence of life. Everyone who comes in contact with us recognizes that we are Christ followers in what way? I'm a Jesus person or I'm wearing a Jesus shirt or I'm wearing a Jesus hat. That's not Oddly enough, the point, Paul is trying to make the point that we're to be the kind of people who live up to our profession. There's nothing sadder in the whole wide world when a person comes up to a Christian and says, I thought so. I thought so. You said you were a Christian. You said you loved Jesus. You said that you are a person who's come to Jesus by faith. And, and because guess what? We live in a world where people are going to judge you harshly, aren't they? By the way, if you claim to be a Christian, is it unreasonable to expect you to act like one? And I think that that's part of the point. We're to live up to our profession we don't simply say that we know Jesus, that we love Jesus. We live our lives in such a way that it's obvious to everyone who meets us. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Saved from sin? No. Saved through the ordeal. So how do we fight the good fight of faith? Well, we're going to learn. We make a good profession in verse 12. We keep this commandment, verse 14. We're going to later charge the rich not to be high-minded in verse 17. We are to be content 
with what we have to be rich in good works in verse 18. We're going to lay hold of eternal life in verse 12. And then again in verse 19, we keep the faith of the gospel in verse 18. And so Paul talks about remaining faithful to the charges. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witness the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Here, he's going to use Jesus as the example. The Lord God is the source of zugonontos. There's two root words, a prefix, a, root, a, a middle word, or a root word, and a suffix. Two primary words for life are bios and zoe. So he's talking about a kind of life. The Lord is the source of the kind of God-given life that's been imparted. Now, I am going to suggest to you that when Paul says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, he's talking about animal life. He's talking about everything that possesses life. But he's also talking about the source of eternal life, the kind of life that lasts forever and ever. Jesus made his good confession before Pilate in Matthew 27, 11, in Mark 15, 2, in Luke 23, 2, in John 18, 36. What does that mean? That Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. What did Jesus confess before Pilate? Remember, there were several things that took place during the course of their conversation. Pilate asked the question, are you a king then? What did Jesus confess? I am a king. But my kingdom right now isn't of this world. For this purpose I came into this world. This is what he confessed. Jesus confessed to Pilate, I came to the planet earth to testify to the reality of what's true. To bear witness of the truth. Do you remember Pontius Pilate's response? What is the truth? Was Pontius Pilate interested in hearing the truth? Loving the truth. Embracing the truth. But Jesus will testify to the truth. He came into the world to bear witness. Of what? That there's a God in heaven. Of what else? That this God loves you. Of what else? It's the summation that you know in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came into the world. Remember, he came into the world not to condemn the world. He didn't come into this world so that people would die a Christless death. Disconnected and going to hell. He came into the world to save people. Jesus lived up to his confession. And remember what Pilate said concerning him. I find no fault in this man. How is it possible to go to trial, 
be exonerated and found not guilty by the judge and then sentenced to death. How is that even possible? In verse 14, it says that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. What commandment is Paul referencing? I think that it's the commandment covered in verses 11 and 12. Flee greed. Follow goodness. Paul's going to list five reasons to do that. Number one, God's the source of life. Number two, Jesus is the perfect example of what it means to make a good profession or a good confession. Number three, Jesus is coming back. Number four, Jesus alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Number five, Jesus alone has seen and can see God's presence and glory. In verse 15, it says, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, in whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. What are we to make of this? This is a doxology. Paul literally gets swept up in a portrait of God. You know, in our culture and society, with the invention and the proliferation of smartphones, people love to take selfies. They'll, t they'll hold out their phone, they'll smile, and then they'll, they'll take a picture of themselves. This is a portrait of God. Since God is the source and the giver of life, he alone imparts eternal life. Eternal life is found in the Father and the Son. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God is the sufficient, the self-sufficient, self-existent being. Jesus makes his confession before Pilate. He's the king. We confess Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming soon. He's going to return to the earth and be exalted. Since Jesus alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, no person can live forever. No person can approach God unless they approach Christ. God is unapproachable. Apart from Jesus, no one will see the light of God's presence or God's glory apart from Christ. And so Paul's perspective and then his persuasive argument is that God and Christ alone bring life. And since he alone brings life, then only God alone is deserving of all honor and everlasting power. And we could literally not just spend the rest of our lives contemplating this verse, but we will spend the rest of our life because in this single passage, I'm going to only be able to just sum it up in a single paragraph. The blessed and only potentate, read sovereign. What does that mean? God is sovereign. He exercises complete control. He's the king of kings. What does that mean? That means no power or authority has more power or authority than him. By the way, this was a title that was used of the king of Babylon and the kings of Persia. And momentarily, it was used of Alexander the Great. 
but it can only accurately describe one king of kings, one Lord of lords, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, Revelation 17, 4, Revelation chapter 19, 16. He is the Lord, possessing absolute power, superior to all other power, human or divine, immortal, that means inherently self-existent. There's two kinds of beings, a self-existent being, that's God, and all beings that exist, that's everything else. We don't have time to talk about what that means. But he dwells in unapproachable light, immortal, self-existent, unapproachable light. God's glory is blinding. And when you use that term, God's glory, in that single word glory, if we did a careful study and then we began to outline and describe the attributes of God, imagine a canister marked glory and we put in his omniscience, his omnipresence, everything that makes God God, we put it in the can and we keep putting it in the can. Every attribute that you can think of or describe goes into the can and it's filled by that one word, glory, unseen, invisible. God is so holy and so pure, no one can truly see him and live. We find that in Exodus 33, 17, 1 Samuel 6, 1, John 1, 8. Worthy of honor. God is to be honored for who he is and what he's done. The Lord God possesses eternal dominion. His power begins in eternity and ends in eternity. This is the kind of power that has no beginning and no end. We can know God. We can't ultimately see God because of his absolute holiness. And the only thing that we can know about God is what he's chosen to reveal in his word and by the person of Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, said, quote, The wicked have a never-dying worm, and the godly a never-fading crown. That sums it up. People who know God and who love Jesus flee from sin, follow Jesus, fight the good fight of faith, and then remain faithful. Chuck Swindoll said, quote, to be like Christ, that's our goal plain and simple. It sounds like a peaceful, relaxing, easy objective, but stop and think. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. So must we. It's neither easy, nor quick, nor natural. It's impossible in the flesh, slow in coming, Supernatural in scope, only 
Christ can accomplish it within us. Accomplish what? The ability to flee sin. The ability to follow himself. The ability to fight the good fight. The ability to remain faithful. And you would think where Paul says, amen, we go, we're done, right? There's just one more. That's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as men and women of God, we, Lord, know that there's some things we just have to run away from. That it's not good enough to keep running away from sin. We have to run into your arms. Lord, you've called us to engage in a battle, a confrontation that's going to require energy, enthusiasm, participation. Lord, we pray that that's exactly who we would be and what we would want. And so again, Father, we pray that you would continue to do that which you desire to do in us. To make us like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.